When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 763. Uh, This episode is going up on my birthday. It's my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Um, I'm going to institute that as the new birthday song that people... You know what? Let's let's stop people from singing happy birthday to us and let's take back the power. We'll just sing it to ourselves. We'll just sit alone with a cake and sing it to ourselves and be strong and proud. And then occasionally when people start poking their heads in and go, why are you singing at yourself? And we're like, fuck off, it's my birthday. Because um, it's the only time you can get away with that. The only, this is a day of forgiveness you have one day of forgiveness a year, and it's your birthday. So uh, enjoy it, as I am. I'm making it about me, because it's my birthday, so fuck you. Uh, unless it's your birthday, too. On fuck you, and happy birthday. Happy happy womb release day, uh, I say to you. Uh, this episode is John Ronson, who is, uh, has written a ton of books and or movies that you, as part of the nerdy, as part of the nerdist audience, have probably enjoyed, um, the men who stare at goats, uh, Frank, the like. But he has a new book that I was fascinated by. So, so you've been publicly shamed is the name of the book, and it explores the idea of how people are shamed into isolation and seclusion now. And it's not about not taking people to task for things that they say. You know, if someone says something dumb or horrible it's there's a way to communicate hey that's shitty let's try to understand why let's talk about why you did that and give you a better understanding of why it's a horrible thing to do but people now are just out for blood uh and it's the disproportionate punishment that comes with you know with just the way that we deal with things now <laughs> lives are ruined you should read, read so you've been publicly shamed it will make you afraid to go on social media but it is a fascinating look at sort of the state of things uh right now uh and john was a very very cool guy and uh and i love his accent he's got the best british accent in the world uh, I listened to his book on uh, – I got the audio version of it, and it's great to hear him tell it from from his point of view. So You've Been Publicly Shamed is available now wherever books are sold. This is the Nerdist Podcast number 763. 
with Mr. John Ronson. Now entering Nerdist.com. John, how are you? I'm good. Oh my god, it's so it's so strange to see your voice coming out of a body because I'm I'm, I'm I'm listening to the book. Oh <laughs> right, cool. Which I you know is because of my schedule. That's how I consume it's the only way I literature consume. these days, especially in Los Angeles. You spend so much time in your car. Yeah. It's happening more and more. I I I I think I don't know if it's still true, but for the first month after the book came out, more people. Listen to it on audiobook than actually bought books. And that's the first time it's ever happened to me. And I think that's like the future. Um, well, I actually, I prefer, you know, it used to just be a, mo- just a method of convenience. Uh-huh. Like I'm in my car, I can listen. But I actually prefer it because I feel like it gives a layer of intention r- rather than, I mean, I think some people would rather, you know, well, I'll let my mind build whatever the context of the story is. But I really like hearing how the author meant to present the material. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of that that's nice for me and it also Well, that's true. But my thing, I get like if I sit if I'm sitting still too long, I get skittish. I think I may be ADHD. <laughs> and uh, and that's why I listen to audiobooks. I can I can walk and listen and hike and stuff. I find though that it's particularly with your book though and I'm I'm a little more than half of the way through. And by the way, I the second I saw that this book was coming out, I immediately tried to get you on the podcast. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I know I was supposed to have done it like about a, like a month. Totally ago. fine. It was, yeah, and I'm really sorry. Basically, I was booked to do like a talk in LA, and then they they cancelled the whole speaker series, and then didn't tell us that they cancelled <laughs> it. And so I like emailed and I was like, "Oh, I can't wait to go." And then they were like, "Oh no, it's cancelled." So that's why I had to. Go. No, of course not. You guys, no, no like worries. On the back of it, I was going to do you, and I was going to do Joe Rogan, and I had yes. to cancel both things, and it was it was. Um, Saddening. No worries. No worries at all. It just, yeah. it just so happened that the time that I saw that this book was coming out, it's this is an issue that has been particularly. Um, I don't know. It's it, there's so much to talk. There's so much to talk about with this, and I we don't have I just have to focus on this uh-huh. book, but it's just the phenomenon of it because sure. you've written a, you've written a ton of. You've written a ton of amazing books that have been turned into movies and you've been – and your particular style is very kind of first-person experience, which is really fun and and, and I have questions about that. But um, this – and I don't want this to get too interviewee because these are these podcasts are just supposed to be conversations as far as I'm concerned. Sure, that- but I really do have so many questions that I just want to like – I just want to pin you down and just cut you open and figure out like what's what. Good. I'm glad that's a figure of speech. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then I'm going to literally cut you open afterwards because there must be something in your body that has the answers to these to these questions. Uh, I, I think it's called anxiety. <laughs> um, it is. And, and I think there's a new – I think that this is all – this all begets a new social anxiety that people mm. have That's that's probably come more into the forefront of – I mean, there's obviously a basic biological. I think there's a basic biological fear of like I'm not going to be accepted by the group. I'm going to be shunned. I'm going to be, you know. Yeah. Uh, also, you know what? I think there's some. Um, 
You know, I think the real reason why I, why I came to this was because like, my last but one book was called The Psychopath Test. Right. And it was like attacking, if it's attacking anything, I don't think my books ever really attack anything, but but if this book was attacking anything, it was attacking kind of labelling culture, mm-hmm. like, like how the worst excesses of psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry would sort of benefit and profit from the culture of like labeling people and sure. reducing people to the bad stages uh, and i'd go around the world like talking to big packed rooms um about that and everybody would agree with me that that labeling people was bad and then <laughs> and then we'd all go home and let's like do it on social media well not only do we do it on social media but yeah. people also are quick to label themselves you know mm. because i think as long, and, and I think I'm sure that must have something to do and sort of tying yeah. weekly tying all this together. It must have something to do science. Uh, weekly tying all this together, I think that could have something to do with people's needing to feel like they're a part of something. And so if you can in a couple of lines describe, oh, oh, well, I have this. Mm. So I guess that's okay because I'm a part of a thing and I don't really have to yeah. examine it much further. It's almost like a just getting a little bit of a prefab <laughs> hypochondriac guide. Yeah. And in fact, I did it a few minutes ago when I said the reason why I listen to audiobooks is because I'm probably ADHD. <laughs> you uh, absolutely do. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, we, we like to label ourselves in ways that make us look good. Sure. And then we like to label other people in ways that make them look bad. Because we're awesome and everyone else sucks, right? Yeah, That's basically yeah. The, but it's, exactly. But ha- having, having witnessed, I mean, honestly... It, I I am I get so I've become so eye rolly now uh-huh. when I see, um, you know, pup, pup outrage on Twitter, like just the word outrage. Yeah. For a long time, I've had this idea, and this goes back to something I've been talking about on the podcast for the last few years that um, that we are addicted to outrage, like the people are addicted to being outraged, mm. and I I do. And I'm torn about it because there are some things that you really should be outraged about. And, of yes. course, that's a very subjective thing. But are we getting to a point where people are becoming outraged so much of the time that is there going to be a bubble that bursts where people just are so desensitized to the concept of outrage that it's meaningless? Yeah, I think that I think that I don't see it happening like in the near future because people are still so outraged crazy right and when you push against it a little bit like i did with this book people then become outraged at me sure so there's still like a big outrage thing going on but i think it has to people have to because it's happening like every day now Uh, and you know you your your eyes are rolling and my eyes are rolling and and surely everybody's eyes are going to start rolling i think what's happening right now is that and obviously it started in a a good place it started Mm -hmm. with social justice and wanting to right wrongs and wanting to like you know democratize justice and level the playing field and get people who were misusing their privilege so it started in all these all these kind of good honest ethical places right but then what happened um is that you know i grew up in i went to college in the 1980s and it's like the worst fucker who used to hang around the student union in the 1980s now gets to decide everything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's gone from that good place to this stressful place. Uh, you know, a few people of my age have said to me lately, you know, who would have thought that, that the younger generation coming up now would want to create a world for themselves that was so stressful? It was so... Um, a surveillance society uh, where what was shameworthy behavior would get like 
wider and wider. Sure. Um, and and I don't think people would want to live in this stressful world. So I think it has to. I, so I guess what I'm saying is that it, it has to calm down a bit. I mean, the last week alone has been like countless people. It happened to Amy Schumer. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just happening over and over and over and over again. And and yeah, of course, some people deserve it more than others. And it's and it's complicated. And so what's happened with my book, actually, is that like people... Like people who don't like the message of my book, which is that there's too much shaming, are like constantly like somebody does something like terrible, like some horrible racist or something horrible. Oh, so this person shouldn't be held accountable for the yeah. Problem, yeah. It's like oh, just waiting for John Ronson to cape up for <laughs> for this murderous racist cop. People, like that's what my book's about. Well, yes, people uh, are very convenient to. <laughs> I think the thing to me that's so frustrating about it is that. Yeah. I have this word that keeps coming into my head, which is uh, – I, I, I call it the apocryphips, which is basically – it's an apocalypse based on wrong information mm. where people will see one headline or they'll see – you know, and, and I don't think it's entirely our faults. I do believe that our – I do believe that we're trying to process more information than our brains are actually evolved to handle. Uh-huh. And so people just see a snapshot of something and they go, yeah, I get it. But rather than just saying, I get it on a surface level, they'll look at just a piece of something, a very superficial piece of something, and then feel like they have a molecular understanding of that situation and then comment on it as though, like, they're, a, they're an expert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first time I really noticed this happening was, was after 9-11, actually, when suddenly everybody was a structural engineer. Everybody <laughs> knew how buildings fell. Right. Like... Uh, and yeah, and that was patently ridiculous. And lots of good people would see that as being ridiculous. Yet we're doing exactly the same thing. I mean, I got into real trouble the other week about the Rachel Dolezal thing. Because you, do you remember the woman? Oh, I remember. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> so, like, so my point with that was so I woke up in the morning and I like, looked on the Guardian site or something and I saw that this woman. Um, had pretended to be black and was running the Spokane NAACP. So I thought, what a f- complicated, you know, weird, crazy, intriguing, mysterious story. So I so I went on Twitter, uh, and people on Twitter, by and large, weren't saying what a complicated, mysterious, intriguing story. People were saying, you know, blackface, racist. Um, you know, everybody knew straight away with the scantest evidence exactly what this woman's motivations were. Right. Uh, so I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, I feel sorry for her because everybody's formed these judgments about her. Nobody knows anything about her. And then like straight away, it was like, oh, yes, a ferocity came onto me. Of course. And, yeah. and you didn't. And there, by the time you're in a place where you're trying, because it, it's like trying to punch a swarm of bees. Yeah. Or yeah. movie, because you. You're being a, you'd be attacked from so many different sides that you can't just go. Okay, wait. J- okay, hang up. But yeah. I didn't say that. Okay, but you're not. Oh, okay, please just calm yeah. down. And there's no way to control the. And I, and I really was. You know, it was so stressful. I mean, I mean, basically, people were saying, you know, you're not black, so you don't have the right to weigh in on on this story. But the reason why I did weigh in on, on this story is because what I what I loved about social media when it started 
what I emotionally loved about it was the fact that it was a place of curiosity. It was like we were going to do things better than the mainstream media. The mainstream media was all about, you know, reducing people and condemning people. And yet on Twitter, we had the, the opportunity to like peer into other people's lives. And people who wouldn't normally meet were suddenly, you know, meeting in this virtual way. And it was a place of like wonderful curiosity. And then suddenly, instead of it being a place of wonderful curiosity, it became a place of even colder condemnation than the mainstream media that we were trying to better. So yes. that's where I came from. It's like, you know, what happened to waiting a little bit to find out more information about this person before we condemn her? What happened to being curious about somebody's life and thinking somebody is being mysterious and intriguing as opposed to, you know, uh, evil and worthy of condemnation? Yes. And, and I think part of the problem is that, um, well, it's I think our... I think our our our, our, our hum, human weaknesses are getting in the way. The the sort of the you know addiction to power is ultimately. I mean, addiction to outrage is ultimately addiction to power because I think we as organisms need to feel significant, and so it's a quick way, obviously, for people to feel significant. But I also I also feel like you know because it's this amorphous, mindless mass uh-huh. um, that there's. I there's I have no I there's no cure I have no idea what whatever because you can't it's not like people are individually gonna stop it's 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 almost this thing about Terminator that I think is sort of right is that I don't think it's that robots are becoming become self aware it's almost like this massive internet consciousness is the thing that's actually becoming self aware and turning on humans yeah. And and at the heart of this is this notion, and you know, I've fallen, I've done this over years, over like the years as a journalist. You know, I believe that I can define somebody by the worst thing they ever said. You know, my friend, I don't, right. I don't know if you know, like, do you know Adam Curtis, the British documentary? No, maker? no. He's great, and you'd love him. He's like our, he's like our greatest genius. Anyway, um, so he said to me one time when I was writing the psychopath test, he said, "Look at you. You're going around the world with your notepad in your hand, and you're just waiting for the gems. And the gems are always the outermost aspects of that person's personality. Mm-hmm. You know, your interviewer's personality. You're looking for the." gem and the gems are always the stuff that would be like defined within the dsm as mental disorders and he said you know so it's weird what we do we go around the world and we wait for the gems and then like medieval tapestry makers we stitch together the gems and then we leave <laughs> all the normal stuff on the floor sure that's all boring of yeah. course yes and none of us like to talk about it because we know it's weird um <laughs> but it's what we do and i and i said to adam no, I don't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I don't. <laughs> and then, of course, I mean, that's exactly what we do. And, and I don't want to do it anymore. And then when social media came along, suddenly here was an opportunity to not do that anymore, to, to have conversations with people who you wouldn't normally talk to. And I loved it. I felt like I was in a Robert Altman, one of those ensemble Robert Altman movies where all these kind of disparate lives were coming together on right. my timeline. And it was great. But now it's exactly what we do. Like everybody on social media is now like me when I was bad. Right. I mean, I know that's a kind of grandiose um, thing. But, you know, basically everybody feels that they can, they can 
like some badly worded tweet is a clue to that person's secret inner evil. Like on the surface, it looks like they're a complicated, nuanced person who leads a good ethical life. But look at that phraseology and that tweet from three years ago. That's a clue that actually they're inside their evil. So everybody's playing this kind of weird game of like cod psychology where we're all defining people um, on the scantest thing, on, on their maddest edges. Even though we know that's not true about our fellow humans, you know, what's true is that we're complicated, nuanced people. You know, what's true is that we're good and we're bad. We're clever and we're stupid. We fuck up and we don't fuck up. That's true. But but that's vanished from social media. And it's and, and it's uh, and the problem is that it's not it's not restricted to social media because the mainstream media now is so enthralled to social media that that kind of cold, judgmental ambience now stretches to the mainstream media too. So it's like infecting a whole generation. Yeah, and, and you know, it's uh, on a human level, on, on an individual user level, what bothers me about it so much is the hypocrisy because it, it, it's like, you, you know, like you, I mean, obviously there are some statements – you know, like if someone if someone came out and made the you know the worst statement against minorities or the war, and this was like their hard line, like this is what I think and this is what I believe, and mm-hmm. you know, it, you know it, it, that's not the same as someone making a dumb joke or someone you know like everyone has made dumb jokes, everyone has said things yeah. where you're like, I mean, like because there's a certain part of there's a section of comedy that's like tackling inappropriate things and shocking people. It's you know, people don't really. You know, no one really feels like those people don't really feel that way. It's not it was like it's not a lecture. They're just and a lot of times people miss the irony of like, no, someone is someone is is satirizing this by kind of blowing it up and making a clownish version of it to reflect back at how ridiculous this is. And no matter how sarcastic or ironic or anything you think you're being on social media, social media, by and large, does not really have a sense of humor, mm. I, I find. Uh, and neither does it have a sense of curiosity, uh, too. It, you know, it's, it's – it's, yeah. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Actually, I, I, I was a few years ago – well, probably 10 years ago or more now – um, I was in Hawaii interviewing this guy called Glenn Wheaton. And I didn't know really know why I was there or what I was doing. But, you know, we just sort of thought this, you know, we, we'd heard that there was this guy called Glenn Wheaton who was kind of interesting and had been part of this kind of secret military unit in the 80s called Project Jedi. So I went there and um, and I started interviewing him. And I said, so what was Project Jedi? And he said it was a series of levels and I said, what well, was level one? He said, level one was observation. You walk into a room, how many chairs are in the room? The super soldier would just know. And I said, what well, was level two? He said, level two was intuition. You have a fork in the road. You go left, you go right, you go right. And I, I said, what well, was level three? He said, level three was invisibility. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you go right from intuition to invisibility. Yeah, I said, that's a leap um, from level two to level three. That's a big leap. <laughs> uh, I said, I said, actual invisibility. And he said, at first. But he said, but. No, was it just alphabetical? They were like, well, there's intuition and then invisibility. And then- well, level four was, was trying to kill a goat just by staring. Sure, of it. course, yes. Yeah. So that's my point. It's like, I, I, I think, you know, the fact that I kept on asking questions led me to this incredible world of like 
special forces soldiers try to kill goats just by staring right, at Right, the men who stare at goats, of course. It, which became the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, which became the movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. If at any point, I was thinking about this last night because I was thinking if at any point during this interview I had said to Glenn Wheaton, you're an idiot, <laughs> fuck off. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I would never have found, I'd never have found any of that stuff out. Being curious and asking questions is what opened up this amazing world. But that takes energy and people don't want to expend energy and there's risk because Mm -hmm. people don't know what to do with too much information and it confounds them and they don't know how to process it. And well, if I get too much... You know, people like prefab systems because if they get too much information, then well, what do I do with that? I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with that, and that's stressful, and I don't want to. So they just sort of write it off. But I just, I'm yeah. so, I'm so saddened by the lack of forgiveness and by, you know, I mean, obviously, if someone makes a dumb joke on Twitter, mm. it, you know, in some cases. Eh, maybe a slap on the wrist or like, hey, yeah. come on. That's not, you know, yeah. I mean, you should really think before you, but not completely obliterating <laughs> yeah. people. And then, and then all those people that chipped in to obliterate, I'm sure none of them came back afterwards and they're like, oh, by the way, sorry that uh, your life is, you know, I mean, it's, like, it's yeah. like if someone stole a candy bar from a gas station and then a SWAT team came in and they just cut them to ribbons with guns. And you're like, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. Don't fucking – don't nick a Zagnut bar, you know? Yeah, it's true. Like the people we destroy, you, you, if you asked us um, – I mean I did when I was writing Say You've Been Publicly Shamed. I'd say, how do you think th- – this person we've just destroyed for telling a joke that landed badly. How do you think they are now? And the, the reply is always, oh, I'm sure they're fine. Because people that, – yeah. I remember that, that was a section on cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. Where people don't like to – they they don't they, they don't, have two conflicting ideas exactly so it's the idea you know we're good people yet we've just destroyed somebody so how do we deal with that conflict well we're justified yeah that either. was wrong I'm good they're bad yeah so we exactly so you do that by labeling them you say well they're a psychopath uh, you know you give them a kind of dehumanizing a dehumanizing word you say they're a sociopath Be- you know, that would you know throughout history we we want to dehumanize the people we destroy because we don't want to feel bad about it or we say oh I'm sure they're fine I'm sure Justin Sacker's fine <laughs> that even happened actually with this book um I mean, most most of the people who reviewed the book reviewed it really well, but there was one review, um, a guy who used to be the editor of Gorka, who basically said, oh, they're fine. You know, they're fine. You know, all the people who, uh, all, all the men, you know, in your book, they're fine. Um, a, a couple of weeks later, after this review came out, some guy in Israel was falsely accused of racism and it went across social media that he was a racist even though he'd worked as an anti-racist apparently and and he, he killed himself you know they're not fine whether you like it or not the people that we destroy on social media tend to be not fine well it's also uh, that's a, that's a shockingly uneducated comment to make because if you have zero proof of some, I mean, there, there is a little bit of a Heisenberg principle. Like, you have not observed whether or not yeah. the cat is alive or dead. So you can't go, I'm sure the cat's alive. Yeah, you yeah. Know, because you haven't even opened the box yet. And so uh, this, is, this is the most disturbing part mm. of this epidemic to me is mm. that people it, – it's so much uh, – it seems to me to be so much a, a, a narcissistic endeavor because it does not – it's more about – and I, and I know that some people really are concerned with social justice, but I feel like there are so many people where it's more about making themselves feel good in the destruction process rather than to, like you said, be curious, try to understand what's going on. It's, mm. you know, I mean, 
years and years and years ago, I was a complete fuck up and a, and I drank a lot and I used to, you know, and I stopped drinking and I started reading self help books and trying to understand my brain better and and I think it I think it's there, there's a, a book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which and the very first one is seek first to understand and people do not. Give a fuck that, about understanding. They just want to emote and rage. Yeah, yeah. I should say, by the way, I just want to add something to. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. please, please, please. I, I just want to add something to the guy. So the guy, the the, the old Gorka editor who said those things, it, he was making a wider point. In fairness to him, I should say, okay, he, he was making a wider point, which was that m- women have it much worse than than men right. during shaming, and that's absolutely true, one hundred percent true. Yeah, uh, when a man gets shamed, it's I'm going to get you fired. When a woman gets shamed, it's I'm going to have to get you fired, death and threats, raped, yeah. and yeah, cut out your uterus women definitely have it much worse than men well yeah because that, that's a lot of my friends who are female comics it just and I, and, and as a guy of course i can't possibly understand what that feels like mm. but knowing that that having your safety threatened your physical body threatened your you know is is a, is a real thing to have to contend with on social media it's just you know it just you know knee-jerk shaming just leads to carnage uh, and all people can think to do at the moment is is knee jerk shame. You know, when when outrage and instant shaming and instant condemnation becomes like the only way we can think to respond to a complicated situation, it's carnage. Like the only way, the only way forward is to somehow break out of that of that you know weird cycle and come up with a different way of dealing with our fellow human beings. You know, who transgress, which would be compassion or understanding or empathy or at least not a rush to judgment because if we don't start coming up with new ways of dealing with with transgressive behavior other than just you know harsh cold disproportionate punishment and condemnation we're creating a really fucking stressful world for 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 people coming up in it especially because when you it's very difficult because there's this sort of there's this universal they that you talk about. Well, when they go online and they say all these horrible things, like, but there's no, there, that, that's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a phantom. Like, who's the they? There's no they. It's just individuals who come together in a mob mentality and then, yeah. And, I, I, and one of the great ironies of this is that the great thing about social media was that it gave a voice to voiceless people. Right. And right now, the smartest way to survive is to go back to being voiceless. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, mean, I mean, ever since the whole Rachel Dolezal thing happened, and I was just like, you know, there was ferocity uh, against my tweet that I felt sorry for this woman because everyone's like judging her without knowing anything about the complexities of her life. Uh, I've basically gone off social media because it was just, it was too, it was too ferocious. And I wonder sometimes though, if it's this, because sometimes when I see these thing on, things unfold, uh, I, a lot of times I feel like it's the, it's the second response for the, mm-hmm. for, you know, for the initial offender. Mm-hmm. It's the second response, or, or or actually their first actual response. So they'll you know they'll say something, and then people might take it the wrong way, and then start attacking them, and then that person becomes defensive. They're like, "Well, what the fuck? I didn't say anything. Oh, fuck all you people!" Yeah. And then that just that's just like a, like a nuclear log in the fire. But I do find that if people, as a response, come out and are sincerely, to your mm-hmm. point, curious and trying to understand and go, "Oh, you know what." 
you know, I didn't mean anything by this and I apologize. You know, can you educate me to understand why it was so bad or can we can we have the conversation? Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times that will at least get people talking and could take some of the some of the teeth out of it so it's not yeah. just you know, of course your your human response, our our human we wanna just like you know, we just want to bark like dogs. Yeah, uh, you're right, and that that makes that makes everything better. You know, a dialogue and conversation and and kindness and compassion. That's that's what that's what fixes things. That's what heals wounds. Um, yes, and none of this is to say I don't believe in the social justice movement because I do. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because I feel I feel it's kind of my people, it's social justice people who are the ones who are kind of spiralling into this kind of cold, hard, disproportionate place. And that's actually become that's actually become sort of a disparaging word now online and in, yeah, in internet culture is social, social justice word. Oh, you're an SJW. Yeah. You know, if you sit and and, it, and people are like, oh, hey, no, I'm not. You know, like it's a, it's such a strange how the language has 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 morphed a bit. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot actually. I mean, so for instance, Brett Easton Ellis, who who I really love, but you know, he's he's ferocious towards social justice warriors, <laughs> as he calls them. And I sort of think, well, that's not the way forward either, because you know, so what do you want to do? You're like you you identify people who are who are you know inappropriately shaming and humiliating other people who don't deserve it. So what do you do in response? You inappropriately shame and humiliate them. It's just more rage and more noise. I really do believe that in, that in most cases, the, the most rageful person at, you know, if someone, the most rageful person at you, if you, if you actually sat down and talked to them one-on-one, face-to-face if possible, I, I'm guessing... It would be a much different scenario. You would have a very human conversation. Yeah. All of that level of – I mean social media is such a shallow form of communication because it's so short yeah. that there's no way to have an in-depth conversation. There's no way to convey emotion. There's no way to connect with it. I mean like we're interacting. Machines are forcing us to behave like machines because the interface is very cold and it's two-dimensional and text-based. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes you wonder like the fact that we all instinctively know that. Why does everybody still fucking, you know, act like twats? <laughs> because people in general are, you know, we're all frustrated by life. We're all unhappy. We all feel powerless a lot of the time. And I think it's it, it's almost like a like like a valve. Like a, I, I I'm guessing. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But I'm just guessing that it's you know there is a conservation of emotional energy. And so when we experience something, when we experience powerlessness, when we experience frustration or rage and we can't express it, it just gets filed away. Yeah. And it starts to build. And then one thing is the catalyst for, you know, a lot of times for people, it's just been my fucking face. Like they just see me on TV and they go, well, I don't like that guy. And then so they'll come and say something. And, and I understand that that's not all up. Some of it's about me. Some people just don't like you. But I think the level of ferocity sometimes would suggest, well, there are other things at play. And this person is ex- is just trying to process mm. past things that affected them. And this is sort of the, the whitehead that, that bursts the rage pimple. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And, and it's tempering free speech. It's, it's making people afraid. It's making people more cold and conformist and uh, and just unafraid you know it's just making people afraid how do you feel about the because you know you said well the traditional media now 
you know, it turns and then you know, especially with the Schumer case, that was that was in the Guardian, right? The, the original story was was the initial story in the Guardian. Uh, which story? The, the, I mean, Amy Schumer. You said recently. Oh, the yeah. initial. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. And so, do you feel like? Because to me, people will read in the mainstream media like, "Oh yeah, look, look what that fucking person did," and I always kind of feel like, well. Do you think those people would be outraged if they knew that on some level the mainstream media was actually probably exploiting the fact that people get outraged at things because they know it's going to create traffic and they know it's going to create engagement and, yeah. and from a way – it's like people are almost playing into something that I think they would otherwise reject, which is basically corporate exploitation. I mean is that, am I, is that too much of a conspiracy theory? No, no. I think it's really true. I don't think that's a conspiracy theory at all. Uh, the mainstream media profits from this. Google profits from it. I mean literally profits. Makes right. money. Twitter – um, profits probably not as much as, as they'd like, right? But nonetheless, I mean, Justine Sacker, who I write about in "So You've Been Publicly Shamed," in an average month uh, before December 2012, right? December 2013. Shit, I can't remember what year was it. Was, I think it was 20. I think it was 2013. I think it might have been 2013. Yeah, um, yeah, it was because I met her for the first time three weeks later, and that was January 2014. Uh, so, Justine, yeah, in an average month, Justine was googled 40 times. Um, the, between December the 20th, 2013 and the end of December, she was Googled 1,220,000 times, which means if you, an internet economist told me Google made somewhere between $120,000 and $468,000 out of the annihilation of Justine Sacco. Whereas those of us doing the actual shaming of Justine Sacco, we got nothing. <laughs> we, we, we were like, you know, we were like unpaid shaming interns for Google and Twitter. So, so yeah, the papers make money. You know, the only people who don't make anything are the shamers, or us, us people doing the grunt work. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of funny that it's, you know, it's almost... Uh... It's, it's, it's almost like the people are, you know, Google is Xerxes and people are just, you know, like using their bodies to carry it on their backs and they don't even realize, yeah, you know, that yeah. that's part of the thing that they're contributing to. Have you come up against criticism from people who are like, oh, what are you trying to do? Excuse the fact so it's okay for her to make these AIDS jokes? And what, what are you trying to? Yeah, I have. And to me, that's like a crazy. I mean, for me, the Justin Sacco story is so fucking black and white because she was trying to do, she was trying to make, a, she was trying to be like Colbert or Sal. Park or Randy Newman. She was trying to make uh, a liberal joke that mocks privilege by doing an exaggerated version of privilege. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. I, I've come up with so... So for me, it was like really obvious that the, that's what she was trying to do. And it was like massively misconstrued. And some people deliberately misconstrued it because they just wanted to to show everybody how empathetic they were to people dying of AIDS in Africa. And um, so it was like a kind of performance piety. And, but yeah, I've had so much fucking pushback against the Justin Sacco story. Um, the first one, the first time it happened, well, it happened as soon as the New York Times exerted my book and people were like, what racist is Ronson going to be putting his cape on for next? Right. I emailed Justine actually and said to her, you know, I'm getting a taste of, of what happened to you. And she emailed back to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Nobody deserves to get death threats. So I emailed back to say, I'm not getting death threats. <laughs> they just said I was putting a cape on. Yeah. yeah, it was just a cape. Yeah, just a cape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I mean, because, you know, when I first, when I first uh -huh. saw that story develop and I, I read the tweet, I, I even felt like I knew what she was trying. Oh, she's trying to be like an edgy comedian, but she's not a comedian. And yeah. so it's, it's out of context. But even... 
even if my favorite edgy comedian made that joke, I would be like, "Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Are you sure?" That's oh, it's not. Really, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not a. It's but not I certainly a great wouldn't joke. have wanted that person's life to be completely destroyed. Yes. You know, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was the first thing that happened. I didn't. So there's like a fury of tweets along those lines, and then somebody said. Why isn't John Hudson reply? Oh, no, I, I wrote one thing. I said, uh, by the way, uh, people who've read the New York Times extract, it's not a standalone article. It's an excerpt from my book, so you've been publicly shamed. And straight away, somebody tweeted, oh, now Ronson's saying it's an excerpt from a book. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck it was, it was always an excerpt. Like, did they think I'd gone home and quickly wrote a book? The great whole machine. Yeah. So, so then somebody wrote, why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? And somebody else wrote, because John Ronson only replies to men. Sure. And, yeah. Honestly, honestly, I'm like Varys from Game of Thrones. I'm like, I'm like a eunuch in a bleeding. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sexless. Um, of course, I mention these trees because they're kind of ridiculous and they make me look better. So, uh, and then I and then I did a book tour and I went to Norwich. The first time after that that I noticed, um, you know, this like the response because I thought I remember my publisher Jeff Glosky said to me, uh, you know, basically tighten your seatbelt like, and, and like it's going to get it's going to get you know rough. And I'm like, why? What? He's uh, I said, I said, what do you mean? You know, everyone's going to love the book. Like, no, because you know, I'm right. And Jeff was like, <laughs> uh, and uh, so then I went, I did a book tour. I went to Norwich. The first time something weird happened was in Norwich in East Anglia, where Alan Partridge comes from. Yes. I think Americans will only know Norwich from University For, of East Anglia. And Alan Partridge. And Alan Partridge. So I was in Norwich. I kind of knew it was going to be weird because the first question in the Q&A was a woman said to me, as a Jew... You should be. You should think very hard about Netanyahu. So I was like, huh? <laughs> like it's not my fault. So, so then somebody somebody said, "Are you a racist?" That somebody in the crowd said, "Are you a racist?" And I thought, fucking hell, for thirty years, you know, in my book, them in the Men's Day at Goats and the psychopath testing, like so many stories that I've done. Like I talk about abuses of power. I talk about powerful people going crazy. And as long as the powerful people who are going crazy are over there, they're like the military or their corporations or their pharmaceutical industry or the psych, everybody loves it. The minute I say we are now the powerful people going crazy, somebody says, are you a racist? How do you answer that? I, I said, uh, I, I think I basically said that. Yeah. I said, you know, it's like we love it. You know, we love it. We love to call out people we love to call out people who are abusing their power as long as they're not us. Right. Um, but we just don't like to look at ourselves. So you lash out. You, you shoot the messenger. I, I think that's a particularly – I think it's particularly dangerous to try to label mm -hmm. situations that way. And I mean I think there are very clear-cut cases mm -hmm. you know, where that's called for. But I also think words have a lot of power. Yeah. And when you use them irresponsibly, either because you're in a bad mood or because you just want to fucking hurt somebody yeah. without really – really understanding what the what it means you desensitize the culture to that word and then when it's actually really necessary 
I feel like people don't take it as seriously because like, oh, people just say that all the time. Yeah. So I feel yeah. like it's very important to use those words carefully. And they are warranted a lot, particularly in American culture today. I, I feel like they're very warranted yeah. in a lot of cases. But <laughs> but here's the problem, though, is that, I mean, the, um, the problem is, is that because of the knee-jerk outrage culture, people have lost their capacity or have just decided to not utilize their capacity to distinguish between serious and unserious transgressions. So somebody like Justin Sacco or Rachel Dolezal is treated with the same level of ferocity as an actual racist, as a racist cop from the McKinney, Texas video or so on. It's like people are losing their... their ability to differentiate between a serious transgression and an unserious transgression. By the way, at Norwich, you said, how did I respond to that? At Norwich, I, I launched into an incredibly, like, passionate and beautifully articulate, like, instant response to the guy saying, are you a racist? And I was so proud of myself. And then afterwards, Graham Lennon, do you know Graham Lennon? Yeah, I know. Yeah. We, follow each, we follow each other on Twitter. Oh, well, Graham was in the audience. Uh, and afterwards, I said, you know, oh, how about that response I gave to the guy asked me if I was racist? You know, that was, and he said, oh, yeah, but the guy, like, the minute he asked you if you were racist, after that, he left. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, didn't, didn't hear it. He didn't want, he didn't want to get mad. Yeah, so, so I was just like, didn't hear any of my eloquent response. Do you think it's <laughs> do you think it's worth it? I mean, do you think social media is still worth it because it is, you know, on the one hand, it does empower everyone. It does empower people. It gives it gives, you know, it's completely flipped the balance of power in our culture to individuals and niche culture and and people who didn't have a voice before and and making the weak strong and that's all good and you know the, the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, I don't I think social media was very helpful. With with yeah. that, so of course it's important, and of course we we and, yeah. and so um, you know countless other examples. I mean, Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, all the videos, the Eric Garner video. I mean, all of that happened because of social media. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, of course, no doubt. But I think, given that we are the ones with the power now, it is incumbent on us to not lose our capacities for empathy, and and I think most importantly to to distinguish between a serious transgression and an unserious transgression because, you know, collateral damage, people like Justin Sacco, people getting destroyed who don't deserve to be destroyed. Um, it's not worth it. It's not. Collateral damage is bad in any situation. So given that we are the ones with the power now, no one's going to say, like, no one's going to, there's not going to be any sort of, I don't know, some, some masthead that comes up that says this person doesn't deserve to be destroyed. It's up to us to, to distinguish it. And right now, nobody's, nobody's doing that. I think because, the, because the, the, the concept of we, when you say we have the power now, I think individuals don't think of themselves as a part of a we. Yeah. I think they just think of themselves as it's something that I've found really, really fascinating about about trollery is that, uh, you know, someone will say something really shit, you know, someone says something really shitty to me online and occasionally, you know, it just gets under my skin because I'm a sensitive performer and I'm a human being and, you know, and so I'll respond and go like, hey, this really sucks or, or, or what I've started to do is I respond in a way that is mirrors how they came at me mm-hmm. and they almost never like it. Yeah. Uh, and, and their response, you know, you would think, oh, well, these trolls, they're so confident, they're so... You know, they're so secure with themselves that they just lash out, you know, like at whoever. And they don't really care what the consequences are. Of course, a lot of them are, are have an egg as their avatar and, and get to, you know, weaponize their anonymity. And that's fine. But um, but a lot of times the response that I never expected was, 
I'm just some schlub who doesn't matter. Why you? Why do you give a fuck what I say? You must be insecure. And then I start to realize, like, oh, they don't even – their self-worth. Like, they don't consider themselves or their opinion is carrying any weight. So they throw it out there because they think, well, I don't matter. And there's almost there's almost a counterintuitive level of low self-esteem that I wouldn't normally – like, normally I think of someone as standing up and speaking up. as like, oh, they're very confident because look at their speaking up. But, of course, they don't have to bear any responsibility for what they say. Yeah, the snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche. I love that quote. Yeah. I love that quote in the book. It's a lovely line, that. So, yeah, yeah. And, but the snowflake does need to take responsibility for the avalanche because we are the ones with the power now. And, and we have to deal with that. And what's the – just in sort of understanding the scope – because, again, I think people still might say, well, so you're saying that no one should ever have to and, and the, you know, she, someone could make a joke and they should never. And like, yeah, you know, slap them on the wrist, but don't, you know, the, this, this level of destruction and salting yeah. the earth and complete shunning and, you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's – it has far-reaching effects. Yeah. Well, like, what are some of the worst cases that you've seen? Well, I mean – Oh, you know, there was one the other. Actually, well, I mean, Justin Sacker was a particularly bad case because, like, you know, we are going to get this cunt fired while she's on a plane. I mean, these are, that was one the of tweets. the tweets, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody go report this cunt Justine Sacco. We're about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired because the hilarity was that she was on a plane and and not only was she unable to explain her joke or defend herself, but her inability to do that became like the wind behind the shaming sails. It became a great part of the hilarity. So I find that to be like a real social media nadir. The fact that everybody loved the fact that her phone was switched off. She was asleep on a plane. She was oblivious to the fact that we, hundreds of thousands of people, were dismantling her life piece by piece. And what do you think that mechanism is? I mean, that was that was that was hysterical. You know, it was it was a. I think on a on a one on one level, it was like on social media we surround ourselves with people who feel the same way we do. So and we approve each other, and this kind of mutual approval machine becomes this kind of ferocious. You mean hysterical, beast. as in uh, being relating to hysteria, not hysterical like funny hysterical. Oh, definitely yeah, wasn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, some people found it funny hysterical. Sure, uh, there were trolls. Somebody wrote. Somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. Jesus Christ. Nobody went after that person. Like, that person got a free pass. It's like everyone was so excited about destroying Justine that it was like our our shaming brains are so simple-minded that we couldn't also destroy somebody who was inappropriately (laughs) destroying Justine. So the trolls got away with it totally. And then you had, like, the compassionate people in the light of this disgusting racist tweet, I am donating to Aid to Africa, and so on. You know, Justine was really uniting a lot of disparate groups that night, everyone from I'm donating to care through to rape the bitch. You know, it's it's, it's so interesting that people, because a lot of the people that, you know, would have otherwise said, well, that was a disgusting joke or, you know, it, that was a that was a, a callous thing to say. But responding, like you said, with and and a disproportionate level of, of callousness, it basically says like, oh, well, you're not you're not a you're not better because you're responding with just as much, if not more ferocity. And so that means that you do approve of attacking people. Yeah. You just have allowances in your brain that te- that where you can go well well it's okay to do this because fuck this person you know yeah you know like 
what we should do, like if we want to be good human beings, like good, ethical, empathetic, decent human beings, if we want to be, actually be those people, what we should do is, is wait and wait for the plane to land, wait for Justin Sacco to turn on her phone, wait for her to explain that she wasn't trying to be racist, she was trying to mock racism by doing a, an extreme version of it. Um, wait, withhold judgment, learn something and be curious. Because, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 30 years and, and as a journalist, you know, in nonfiction and the best stories, the the stories that add something to the culture are the ones where you put in the time to learn about somebody and understand them. And that's what makes the world better, not cold, hard, disproportionate punishment, not screaming. Screaming closes doors. Um, compassion and curiosity opens doors. Are you sure? And obviously, I know you spent a lot of time with her and had conversations, but in this case in particular, you really do do you really do agree with this assessment and it wasn't just she was just making a shocking joke to try to get a rise out of people i mean like do you do, it's obviously it's easy in retrospect to go oh well i was trying to yeah you know i was trying to satirize the blah 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 and you're like were you really though and so and you're not the first person to have said that to me I, I, another talk somebody said you know how do you know you know yeah. how do you know but all i can say is that you know I, i've been doing this for 30 years i feel like i'm a good sure. judge of character and i i asked her to explain the joke to me and she said, living in America puts us in a bubble when it comes to what is going on in the third world. I was making fun of that bubble. Uh, and I have like no reason to to disbelieve that that's what she was intending. Uh, I've got no reason to suspect that she was, you know, post-rationalizing it. I, yeah. You know, I believe her. Do you think that, um, do you think comedy helps any of this or hurts it in the sense that you know, like I, I host a show that's very akin to a British panel show. You know, where we take stuff off the internet, and, and now, and now, you know, with uh, with the, the the election sort of around the corner, it's you know, a lot of people are announcing candidacy via social media, so that becomes fodder for us. And so, you know, we're making fun of people, and yeah. Hillary did this, and Trump did this, and Ted Cruz did these ridiculous Simpsons impersonations. Do you think, you know, he, you know, here I am saying, well, how can these people, blah 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 blah. You know, are we fueling the fire, or is it, or is it, hmm. are we excused because it's like, well, we're just satirizing, we're just making comedy, like yeah. we're not trying to, because you know, we're, it, it's, we're, we're not, it's not a serious lecture, but our, but it's comedy part of the problem. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, when I was like in the bubble of writing this book, I, I was thinking all of these thoughts myself. It's like, what am I against here? Um, and, and then, you know, eventually, it became really clear to me, like, um, this book isn't against satire it's not against comedy comedy's good mocking is is fine curiosity's good um journalism investigative journalism criticism all of these things are good uh, the only thing that's not good is the cold hard judgmental disproportionate punishment of somebody who basically didn't do anything wrong it's you know mockery and satire isn't life-changing punishment you know i'd be a real dope to say I'm against criticism or or satire or comedy or mockery, all that's fine. What's not fine is disproportionate punishment. Right. Well, I mean, inside every – well, not every. Inside a lot of comedy is the seat of something terrible. Yep. And people only – they have no problem laughing at 
something that might be terrible to someone else, but the second it lands near their feet, it's like, well, how? I mean, so you think this is funny? Like, yeah. well, I don't know. I mean, maybe that person didn't think that thing was funny. I don't think it's funny, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I'd struggled with it for a long time. And then um, we had Mel Brooks on the podcast a few years ago. And so his, his take on it was that comedy should subvert power. And so I think, you know, I, and this is all a slippery slope where shit gets real gray real fast because it's like, well, are you subverting power or are you bullying? Are you yeah, bullying yeah, yeah, or is yeah. it subversion? I mean, why, and so how do you – you know, because everyone has a different point of view, but everyone has a voice. Yeah. Uh, well, OK. I mean, I, I'm, yes, of course. I mean, these, these thoughts, you know, haunted and plagued me when I was writing the book. <laughs> but you know what? You know, I think we know, right? We know. We know when, when we're – we know when what we're doing is social justice – and we know really when what we're doing isn't social justice, it's like a cathartic alternative to social justice. So the destruction of Justin Sacco wasn't social justice, it was like a cathartic alternative to, just, to social justice. Everybody go report this cunt Justin Sacco um, and, you know, I'm not going to rest until this Justin Sacco cunt gets fired. That word got used a lot in the, oh, in the tweets. Yeah. You know, thousands of people took it upon themselves to get Justine fired while she was asleep on a plane. That is, by any standard, different to people being funny on a comedy panel show. Right. Uh, so, you know, so you can tell. So, you know, in these kind of extreme examples, you can tell that what happened to Justine is very different to an episode of The Daily Show right. or your panel show and so on. So, so yeah, I think, you know, as I say, it's incumbent upon us, given that we are the ones making these decisions every day of our lives when we go on Twitter and decide who to destroy. Yeah. We have to make those distinctions. We, we have to be responsible and adult about it because people are killing themselves, people's lives are getting destroyed, people's mental health is getting mangled up. So, so we have to do it. And, and yeah, we will always find grey areas. It's pretty much every one of these stories is a grey area. Justine was stupid to have written that tweet. Uh, Tim Hunt, the British Nobel laureate who... Do you know the Tim Hunt story? Uh, no. Okay, this was a guy a couple of weeks ago who gave a speech in South Korea... Um, where he said uh, it was a speech about getting more women into science. And he's like this kind of esteemed Nobel laureate. And he said, the problem with having women in the labs, is how he started. Oh, no, I yeah, can see where yeah, this is going. Yeah. Is there, uh, oh, no. Someone should have been like, yeah. no, Stop, Tim! It's like, oh. And it's in slow motion, just knocking the microphone out of the way. Right. But nobody did. So, <laughs> so no. uh, the problem with women... <laughs> In the labs, oh, no. is there uh, you fall in love with them? Oh, they fall in love with you, oh, uh, and when um, and when uh, you criticize them, they cry. So then, apparently, what wasn't reported um, that was what was reported, and some people started this hashtag called distractingly sexy, which was funny, and everyone was being funny. And, right. and, and then and then UCL, his college, told him he was no longer welcome, so he was effectively fired. And then he got home, got off a plane, got home, discovered this had happened, sat on the sofa and burst into tears. So I think even with a story like that, oh, and then apparently um, what wasn't reported at the time, but is only coming out now, was after he said all of that stuff, he said, 
But seriously, uh, I think there should be more women in science. Oh, wow. None of that was reported. Uh, so, so there's a situation, OK? The distractingly sexy hashtag where people were, like, making silly, funny jokes about, you know, women in the lab being distractingly sexy and all these kind of women scientists were posting pictures of themselves wearing these kind of, you know, ridiculous science smocks. And, right. And hashtag distract. That's funny. Um, him getting fired... Effectively, although it was not, it was an honorary position, so some people say he wasn't fired. He, he just, you know, was no longer welcome to take his honorary position. That's not good, right? I, I, I think the person who kind of um, wrote about all of this but didn't point out. Oh, by the way, after that, he then said, "Just kidding." There should be more women. That's wrong. So I think even in that ambiguous, complicated situation, it's pretty obvious when you just take a minute to unpick it all. Some of what happened was fine, some of what happened wasn't fine. And it's up to us to be mature enough to work that out. Do you, because I would imagine, especially because you're a writer and because you spend a lot of time in your own head and because I would imagine, you know, there's, I would assume a lot of introspection as you're going through this because you're seeing things and of course you're trying, I'm assuming you're trying to connect yourself to it and how do I fit in and do I think, you know, is there ever any point where you, it's sort of like the um, when you're uh, I just just passed the part in the book where you're interviewing the that guy Max Max Mosley and uh, and he's and I guess you know they told him he was a sociopath and he was like am I a sociopath and you yeah. and, and, after like, writing the psychopath test so many people want to know they want to know if they're a, if they're a sociopath yeah I've got a good uh, tip for people listening to this like a good way of finding out like if you read my book the psychopath test and if you feel worried as you're reading it, that, you know, you recognise these traits in yourself and you might be a psychopath. That means you're not a psychopath <laughs> because psychopaths never worry about being psychopath. They don't psycho- worry about that yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like it's a good feeling. It's yeah. like it's the most pleasant feeling, I'd say, of all the mental disorders because yeah. there's no anxiety, there's no remorse. So if you're worried you might be a psychopath, that means you're not a psychopath. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah. Do you, h- how do you deal with or what questions do you ask yourself where you go, well, because obviously... A lot of your stuff is very first person. Mm. So do you go, well, am I biased or am I an, am I a narcissist? Am I doing what the, what I see that by what I tell other people that they're doing? How do I know if I'm actually not a part of the problem? You know, well, you've got to, I mean, that has to become part of the thing. Uh, I used to be really against, I remember there used to be this TV presenter in Britain called Donald McIntyre, who mm-hmm. was one of these sort of, um, one time he, he did this expose of the fashion industry. He, he would put like hidden cameras all over his body and, um, one time, like, somebody gave him some Coke and he went into the toilet and got, like, the, the little little envelope of cocaine and, like, filmed himself, like, opening it up and putting it down the toilet. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching that and, like, with this look of, like, sort of, you know, um, superiority on his face. I remember thinking, God, you work for the BBC. It's like you've never seen Coke before. <laughs> 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 he knew exactly how to open it. He knew yeah, exactly yeah. how to. So I've always been really good. I mean, the people I admire are the people whose own failings, who are very honest. Like the journalists I admire, the journalists who are very, you know, self-critical and honest about their own failings. And if they fuck up or if they are biased, then they put the biases into their work. You know, that's the kind of stuff I love. So I love. You know, people like Louis Theroux, I love Werner Herzog, you know, you've Ross McElwee, Nick Broomfield, you know, the, the really great documentary makers are the ones who are very happy 
to wear their own failings on their sleeve as part of the story. And the, and the people I don't like are these kind of... Um, it's like, you know, performance superiority, like performance outrage. Um, yeah, those are the words, you know, so it's, and people, and, and actually the readers love it. The readers love it when I change my mind. Like in the psychopath test, I, I become drunk with my psychopath spotting powers <laughs> and I start spotting psychopaths everywhere. I start like anybody you'd ever done me a wrong. I, I went, and then, uh, and I really did become drunk and then I realised the error of my ways and the second half of the book is like, sort of, you know, it becomes like a cautionary tale to not get too drunk with your powers like I did. And people really like that. Um, so, yeah, so, so you have to, like, notice your biases and notice your mistakes and then make that part of the narrative. And I think people like that. And I think, I think there's also a certain part of, you know, of honesty or authenticity. And I, I do actually think people, by and large can be forgiving if they feel like, you know, in, in the case of uh, Jonah Lara, mm. you know, when they he gave an apology and then, of course, you know, people didn't buy it and then they found yeah. out he got paid for the speech and so then that was like, oh, well, fuck you twice. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so... Jonah Lara, yeah, um, people were tweeting. So Jonah, you know, the disgraced pop science writer, did a public apology that was streamed online and somebody erected it, and the foundation erected a giant screen Twitter feed right next to his head. This is all in the book, so he'd been uh, and and the tweets that were coming up. So Jonah was trying to apologise, and people were tweeting, um, "Jonah Lara has not proven he is capable of feeling shame." <laughs> uh, the person who wrote that must be the best fucking psychiatrist ever to know that about this tiny figure sitting you know it, but but you know what's interesting is that because and this is this is this is part of the twitter in particular social social media as a, in general but twitter in particular it's it is a snapshot through which permanent definitions are forged which a a permanent like a wider you know definition on the nature of something yeah. requires a lot of books that's why you know when naturalists would write books like on the nature of this on the nature of that they were very thick volumes of yeah, books yeah, yeah. because it took a lot of research and time and so you know like they didn't just like you know darwin didn't just walk up and take a picture of a toucan and go okay here it is like all right you know i yeah. mean it's like and and that's <laughs> sort of you know the the the, the lens through which people are are dropping their anchors is so narrow and and shallow yeah and, and i think that's part of the problem and we hate it when other people do it you know uh we we hate the kind of tyranny of overlabeling everybody thinks the dsm is crazy to have like 886 pages of mental disorders um you know everyone thinks that's nuts so like when other people succumb to shallow labeling and reduction People don't like it. We don't like tabloids. Yeah, that's exactly how we behave on social media. So, you know, that's a real... It, it, it's really mystifying to me that, that we are falling into all the same traps of the things that we hoped to better. Well, knowledge is, knowledge is power and, and it's addictive. You know, it's addictive to see... Um, I mean, I'll see things online if if it's especially if you know if it's a project that I've either been involved with or 
uh, or know people who worked on, and then I'll see people, you know, people online go, "Well, the thing you got to understand about this is blah 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 blah," and I'll know that none of it's true uh, with firsthand experience, and I go, "Well, this person has no." But to them, to sort of peacock their knowledge feathers is very empowering to them because everyone's like, "Oh, oh, well, you know," and the, and people flock, and so it's it's a it's a dangerous addiction. I feel like it's this this addiction to power and 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 knowledge, and in most cases, well, in a lot of cases, apocryphal knowledge is is very uh, is dangerous. And I don't know what the because I feel like in order to root it out, you would you would sort of have to. Alter human nature, so I don't know mm. if that's I don't know if that's yeah. possible. What's the takeaway? Well, or just have, or, or, or you know, have voices. I, okay, here's here's okay, here's the take. I have the takeaway. All right, uh, and there's something that happened a couple of weeks ago um, with the Am. Do you remember the the Amtrak crash? Yes. So a woman emerges dazed from the train crash and tweets something along the lines of. My violin is is uh, on in Coach B. Maybe the emergency workers can get to rescuing my violin. So straight away there was like hundreds of you know you privileged cunt, you entitled cunt. Yeah, maybe the emergency workers might stop tending to the dead and dying to rescue your violin, you privileged cunt. So basically, thousands of people who hadn't just been in a train crash were accusing a woman who had just been in a train crash of being entitled and privileged. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, and the reason why was, like, all they knew about this woman was that she had a violin. Like, that was it. So everybody was, like, forming this, this huge judgments on this woman uh, because she had a violin. So um, then what happened was that a whole bunch of other people, something happened that didn't happen with Justin Sacco. Like, the night of the Justin Sacco incident... Nobody or practically nobody said anything in support of Justine because anybody who tried to say something in support of Justine that night just immediately got a fury of, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. Right. You know, you're the same, you know. So everybody was like cowed into fearful silence the night of Justine. Whereas with this woman who had just emerged from the train, like a bunch of people were like, shut the fuck up, you know. Um, this woman's just been in a train crash. What are you doing? You don't know anything about this woman. You only know that she's got a violin. And so, like, a bunch of people started arguing with each other. And, you know, because people saw that this woman was being unfairly treated and they spoke up and they said something and then it became a, a dialogue. And what a dialogue is, is democracy. Whereas the destruction of Justine Sacco and anybody who tries to like say anything in support of Justine just gets screamed out. That's the opposite of a democracy. And that was the thing that was most traumatising to Justine. The fact that nobody defended her. She was just being told in this visceral way by huge numbers of people, you know, you're worthless, get out. You know, that's deeply traumatising and can totally mangle somebody's mental health. Whereas I bet you the violin woman on the train would read like some people are against her, some people are for her, everybody's shouting at each other. That's fine. That's, that's democracy. You know, that's dialogue. So the takeaway is when you see somebody who's being inappropriately shamed, even though it's pretty fucking horrible to stand up because you're, you're, you're in... You know, it's a hurricane. A hurricane comes up against you when you try and do that. That's the only thing you can do. And a bunch of people have started doing it. You know, I'm doing it with my book. Uh, Monica Lewinsky's doing it with her TED Talk and so on. You know, the people calling for for patience 
Um, don't rush to judgment. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to agree with what the person said. No, as long as I mean, like, Rachel, as long as you're willing to have the conversation and go, why did you say this? Are there other factors? Where? What's your background? What yeah. did you mean? And if you still don't agree with it, you, go, you know what? That was really shitty that you said that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. And I think if more and more people do that, then that's going to make things a lot better. I mean, I always think about how interesting it is that. Uh, I always think of South Park mm-hmm. as an example of a show that is loaded with stuff that if anyone else made those jokes would be eviscerated. Yeah. Like, just, just like stripped, dragged into the public square and shot with a hose full of acid. And I think – and so I always think of that as an interesting case study because it's like, well, they're, they're – I mean, I'm sure people complain about stuff on that show. But in general, they're socially immune. And I think part of it could be – well, they've been on for so long, they were sort of grandfathered in in a pre-social media era, and so people already sort of went, they were able to file it away and go, oh, but, but that's South Park. Yeah. Like, it's animated, they're being silly, it's not, you you know it's satire yeah. because it's not. And also, there's a real, there's a kind of gentle heart at, at the centre of South Park, and right. maybe there isn't so much at the centre of Family Guy. So I think, I think another reason why South Park gets away with it so much is that they... You know, their sort of warm heartedness always shines through. You know, Butters is lovely and so on. <laughs> but that's because, you know, that's because they've got the half an hour and, and nobody nobody allows that kind of nuance on social media. Yeah. Social media, you know, Twitter isn't set up for nuance and warm heartedness. So if someone does find themselves and you, you I, I'm at the part of the book now where you're you're starting to explain about how it never occurred to you before that like, oh, I guess I could try to understand how to survive a yeah. public social media shaming. Uh, it, do, you, do you have some better ideas now? Yeah, I, I think I've got a few. I think, okay, only draw attention. Um, sorry, only respond. Okay, well, I think there's two different sorts sure, of sure. Okay. shamings here. Sure. There's one where you think is deserved and there's one when you think is not deserved. So are we talking about... Like you've transgressed and actually you've done something wrong and stupid and you have to try and get yourself out of it and and have a life? Or have you been like unfairly shamed? Right. Um, if, if you feel you've been unfairly shamed, I think you should fight back. You should say something. The one thing I would know, the one thing I would say is that people only notice, like with the Amy Schumer thing that happened last week, like nobody would have noticed that if if she hadn't drawn attention to it by responding. Right. If she if she hadn't responded, it would have just passed without incident. So I think you should only respond to something that you're actually happy to draw attention to yourself because that is what's going to happen if you respond to it. You'll draw attention to it. Uh, if you If you feel like you really have done something wrong and people do fuck up, you know, people do transgress, I think what you should do is is apologize and then stay silent for a while. I mean the you know Hugh Grant mm-hmm. in 94 or 5 yeah you know like that was such that was around here right it was, was I think it was around here yeah. yeah that was such an amazing case of you know it was a and this this was before I mean, I know there were tabloids, but it wasn't like we weren't so much a tabloid culture at that point. And then so, you know, Hugh Grant getting caught in the car with a prostitute and it, and he, and he, you know, and then there was Liz Hurley. And so it was all this whole thing just blew up and him coming on with his with his head down and his charming British accent and just yeah. being like, 
I fucked up. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I and and you can you know like people. It's like people want a little bit of blood, and and it was he could either give it to them or they could extract it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he gave it to them, and people seemed to buy. You know, like okay, well he seems sorry, and then it almost immediately went away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it? He had the, you know, he had the advantage of being kind of adorable and charming. Well, we're, you know, we're Americans. We're so charmed by your accents that yeah. it, there's no, I mean, we're, it's sort of, it's almost like we are the. Do we come over as, as smarter than we maybe actually are, would you say? Well, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that whenever someone is portrayed as being academic, that they retain this bit of a quality, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, so, I mean, yeah. it's, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of regional accents in America get the short end of the stick, you know? There are, of course, tons of brilliant people who live in the South. But if you were to ask a random person, like, be a scientist, they wouldn't go, all right, I'm going to smash these atoms together and this big old <laughs> proton accelerator. Like, they would never choose that as their go-to uh, uh, representation of, of, of that. So I do think we are enamored. And maybe it's something that you um, programmed into our DNA as we separated, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like, okay, but you're always going to be charmed by us. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I do think that... But I say, oh, by the way, the thing about Hugh Grant, I mean, I, I say this in the book, that our, I think our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. Right. So if you narrow that space down to nothing, like Hugh Grant did, like I was an idiot, uh, I fucked up, I'm sorry. You know, that moment, Hugh Grant narrowed that space to nothing. And I think that really helps. Jonah Lehrer, his space was as wide as the Grand Canyon. Right. Like... He had fucked up, you know, with the with the fake Bob Dylan quotes. Like instead of saying, "Oh my God, I'm such an idiot," I should never have faked some Bob Dylan quotes. I'm a real twat. I'll take them all out in the second edition. It was stupid. He basically said, "Oh no, my Bob Dylan quotes are accurate. It's history that's wrong." So he kind of he he widened the space between who right. he actually was, which was somebody who was like idiotic and overworked and, and ambitious and neurotic, and you know, uh, and the way he presented himself to the world, which was. I'm this kind of extraordinary, I'm this, you know, high and mighty person. That that was another reason for Jonah's undoing. I think it's very important to ask yourself in any situation, whether you're someone who's on the receiving end of the shaming or someone who's going to be doing the shaming is, and I feel like this is something that people don't do. And as I get older, it's something that I try to do more and more. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm good at it yet. I'm not at all. But I ask myself, is this thing that I'm doing, is this thing that I'm fighting for, is this thing that I'm pursuing is this an ego decision? Because an ego decision is is a very short term gratification decision. Yeah. Um, is this is this for my ego? Even if I'm telling myself like, no, well, this is wrong. Because is my yeah. is my approach to this to satisfy my ego, or or are my intentions actually altruistic? Or are my intentions good? Is it is this for the long term yeah. good? And I think even in just that moment, if you stop to ask yourself that question, you will eliminate. A, a significant percentage of just reacting. Yeah. And also, am I doing this because I want to show the people in my How Twitter evolved network? I am, yeah. how smart I am, how above everything I am. Yes. And, and you know, and, and of course, as a comic and as a human, I, I'm absolutely guilty of that stuff, too. I mean, I, I do it. I mean, I, you know, I have to I have to cop to the fact that I do it all the time to like the Kardashians. I go, well, yeah, but fuck them because they're shallow. And it's like, I don't really know them, you know, like yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just I have these the same information that everyone else has and you know and 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 
who am I to say, you know, I don't know. I'm no better. I'd still, I do it too, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to really get better at it. And when you're young, you're so much hormone and, and emotion and you haven't figured out oh, that has an effect. You don't, you don't really think about causality and, and, and an effect when you're young. And so as you get older, you, when you've seen things happen, you go, oh, there's consequences and maybe I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And do you – did your mind – it feels like at the beginning of the book you lay out this idea where you go, I used to be all for this. How did you land at the end? Well, now I, I really don't have the stomach for it. I, and, I, and I feel – you know, I think what this book's really about, it's, it's about more than just social media shamings. It's about what do we do about – our fellow human beings' transgressions. Like, what? how do we want to respond to our fellow humans' transgressions? Do we want to just sort of define them by, by them? Do we want to like, like allow some transgression to just swallow somebody up? Do we want to condemn? Do we want to be cold and hard and judgmental? Or do we want to admit that we're all fucked up and we all transgress and we should be more compassionate in the face oh, of that. I was going to admit that. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, social media isn't this sort of like the Old West, you know? Well, There's a little bit of an Old West where it's like, hey, you t- uh, you took a beer from my bar. I can shoot you in the street now. And right. no one can say anything about it until someone is like, came along and like, you know, maybe we should set some... <laughs> Yeah. things in place that don't get us from a to murder r- r- right away you know <laughs> right and that's yeah and that's not happening right now on social media I, you know so for me it's like i don't you know spending time with the shamed and the destroyed and i've been doing this for you know many years now on all of my books you know people whose lives have been you know have just unraveled um what you learn is that you know besides the tiny tiny minority of psychopaths out there who who have no empathy and they're kind of different to the rest of us and there's you know i mean even with people like that i feel sympathy but basically we're all the same and and you know when you spend time with broken people you can only feel you know kindness and empathy and compassion and and you can't be you can't be a condemning person anymore. And, that, and that's, you know, where I am now. And once you come to that realisation, it's really hard to go back. And, and, and the, the, the other thing that really frustrates me as a, as a member of our society is that sometimes, you know, especially when there's such a disproportionate amount of destruction in response to something, I start to resent the people on a different level who are part of the destructive force. But I go... Don't make me side. Like, even if I'm on mm. your side, you're forcing me to not be on your side. Mm. Like, I, you know. Yeah. So the only way to do that is to just opt out of the whole fucking thing and just not and just only be only be kind and only be compassionate. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's without being like an idiot, without being a dupe. I mean, you don't I don't you know, I mean, you know, when something really I mean, we said this before, but, you know, social media has the chance to properly right wrongs and often does. The Black Lives Matter protests have been an incredible force for good. Um, and, you know, the McKinney video, I mean, that will shock people into change. And, yeah. and so, you know, we're, I think we have to kind of say we're not talking about things like that. No, 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 no. Of course yeah. not. It's just that, like I said before, the the slope, the, the slope gets very slippery and it gets very gray very fast because the way that you know, a, a lot of these things, I mean, like the, the things that you're talking about to me 
are not subjective. Mm. It's like that is very, you know, yes, of course, that's wrong. These people who would not have been given a voice before were and that that's absolutely necessary and and that's that system of checks and balances, but it's sort of like the system of checks and balances um kind of has guns firing in all directions and it's kind of hitting things that it's like, well, I don't know. That one was, you know, like that other thing that was just a dumb, it's, Mm. it's, they're not, it's not all the same playing field, but the mechanism is treating everything as though it's all the same playing field. That's totally the problem. Uh, You know, people, as I, as I, you know, said before, you know, people are finding it impossible to differentiate between between somebody who commits like a bad act and somebody who didn't. You stole hubcaps? Death sentence, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. This this is the problem and that has to that has to change. Did your previous work um with extremism factor in at all because there is a lot of social extremism in these types of cases it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see parallels between the people who who are kind of destroying people for nothing because it's all about it's all about reducing people and labeling people and 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 you know hating people, um, uh, yeah, and demonizing. It's all about demonizing. Don't we have this sliding justice scale in our head where we look at someone and if they're doing really well, but we just they just kind of seem like a douchebag. We're like. We should probably take that guy down. He doesn't deserve that. Fuck that guy. You know, yeah. like there is sort of a sliding justice scale in our head about what we think. Uh, I don't really know. I, don't, I, don't, I think that's more than that person deserves. You know what? Fuck that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there does seem to be a little bit of of that too. <laughs> kind of evening the pl- leveling the field for everyone. Yeah. 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 I guess. How do you feel now? I mean, in terms of now that the book's been out, now that you've been talking about it. Now that you, you know, is there anything you go back and change or do you feel like, you know? I think I'm going to write a new chapter for the paperback about everything that's happened since the book came out. Oh, that's out. amazing. What a great idea. Yeah, because I was like, I was, you know, because I, I became so much the kind of part of part of the story. So what, just really quickly before we let you go, like what do you, what has changed and what do you, what? Um, I mean, right now I'm I'm off social media because I just, it just got too noisy and it just got too unpleasant and um so i'm kind of off it and i think that's such a shame because i was such a kind of evangelist for social media i really felt like we had the ability of doing things better of like changing the world and now i've 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 just gone off it i'm hoping that's not going to last it's been it's been a noisy i mean more than any book i've ever written it's been you know it was deafening you know some people loved the book and, and and some people like hated it and everyone was yelling and I'd wake up at four o'clock in the morning and, and there'd be like 900 people had tweeted about the book while I slept. And so then I thought, fuck, I can't go back to sleep till I find out if anything bad happened. And uh, and, and it, so I, I got anxious and I, and I uh, you know, had to take Xanax and then that made me feel really groggy. And I thought I'd rather be anxious than groggy. So <laughs> that's kind of where I am now. And, and um, Whether or not people like the book or don't agree with the book... I think the important thing about it is that it should foster conversations. It should foster conversations about, you know, are things being done the right way? Is there a way, you know, can can we, how can we see humanity in things that we would otherwise just write off and go, yeah, fucking kill that person, you know, fire. You know, I think, and I think that has happened and I think that's going to continue to happen. Um, yeah, and that's good. As I say, you know, it was it was noisy and quite unpleasant 
for, for me. And kind of frustrating too, because like, you know, you notice, you, you notice, like, I, like when it first started happening, I would read on Twitter, people were like, let's goad, let's goad John Ronson into saying something like outrageous and then we'll get him. So there's a whole bunch of that stuff going on. And this is only because I was like defending people like Justine Sacco. Right. Uh, and, and I think I managed you know, to not be goaded into saying something outrageous. And hopefully people understand that it's not, I mean, and to your point, again, and I keep driving this home so people understand, it's not that you're defending what she said, you are defending the disproportionate amount of destruction and threats uh, and, you know, and earth salting. With Justine, though, I, I mean, I think, you know, it was badly worded. It was not a good joke. But really, you know, I'm a big fan of Randy Newman. You know, I love Randy Newman. Short people have got no reason to live. You know, Justine Sacco's crime was that she just wasn't as good at it as Randy Newman. So I'm not defending what Justine Sacco said because it wasn't a good joke, but it was a liberal joke. It's like if you want to destroy Justine Sacco, what you're really saying is that you, you know, I mean, where, where do you end? Do you destroy Colbert? Do you destroy South Park? Do you destroy Randy Newman? It's like Justine's crime was just not being as good at it as South Park. Well, not having the context of South Park, not earning the trust from people mm. of knowing that it's safe, that they don't mean those things, that they're satirizing things. I mean, she lacked all of that context. She hadn't earned the trust of people yet. She didn't put in the time for people to go, okay, in context, this is her background. This is normally her messaging. This is what she meant by this. She's making a comment about this. There was none of that. And so, you know, Colbert worked for, you know, decades to become this comedy person. South Park's been on for 18, 19 years. I mean, it's just like it. they have the context and people know that they don't, they're not really saying, you know. Yeah. But in all honesty, I mean, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely right. But even so, given that we were the ones who who were tearing Justine apart while she was asleep on a plane, um, the fact is it's not, you can't blame her. We have to blame ourselves. Like the people who destroyed Justine can't blame her because she was asleep on a plane. She was unable to explain herself and her inability, you know, beguiled us. You know, we, it was, you know, the fact that she was uh, oblivious to her destruction became such, such a huge part of the hilarity that night. Uh, You know what? I don't think Justine, I honestly don't think Justine, you know, other than the fact that it was a bad joke, I don't think Justine can be blamed in any way for what happened to her. I hope that, because I assume that there will be a particularly larger amount of engagement you know based on this podcast on the on the website and and i hope that when people do go to talk about it that they really do talk and they really do have conversations and really do ask questions and like you said get curious i'm just i'm i'm I'm, the whole thing the public shaming thing reminds me of a an animated short that robert smigel did for snl for tv funhouse which i always it to me is brilliant and i think it so perfectly summarizes some of these ideas, which is it was a takeoff on an old show on an old cartoon and maybe from the 60s or 70s where these these kids had a genie. And so 
uh, in it, there's this evil villain. And so they summon the genie to, in Smigel's version, they summon the genie to take care of the villain. And he takes care of the villain. And the kids are like, yay. And then the genie goes on to, with magic, essentially torture the guy, cut him into several pieces, summon up the guy's mother. And so she can watch, you know, the yeah. villainous son be completely destroyed. And at a certain point, the kids start going like, yeah. Whoa, oh, whoa, whoa. Hey, oh, hey. No, go. You're hurting him. You know, like, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's it, it so much goes in that, in that opposite direction. So I don't know if you get a chance, you should look it up. Cause it, I think it, I think it really distills that, that idea of kind of, of where we've come to. And I hope people do remember that no matter how, you know, and again, we're not, I'm not, I should say I'm not. I'm not supporting a lot of the stuff that people say online, a lot of, you know, horrible jokes. I don't agree yeah. with oh, them. But- and, and, and honestly, I, I, you know, when my book first came out, uh, one of the very first interviews I did was for, I think, ABC or one of the big networks. And after the interview was over, the cameraman said to me, oh, I'm so glad you've written this book. You know, the other day on Twitter, some guy uh, – told a transgender person that that she was a fruit loop and everyone attacked this person for calling the transgender person a fruit loop like you can't even call a transgender person a fruit Jesus loop anymore Christ. and as he said this you know just a chill ran through of me course. and i said to him that is not what my book yeah about. that's not okay you know, i am for want of a better phrase i am a politically correct person i completely understand the power of language you know and 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 i believe that people watching the things they say has has made the world a better place and will continue to make the world a better place. I understand the power of language. I do not want people to be offensive to each other or shame each other or humiliate each other. That is not what my book's about. What my book is about is is the fact that we have created a surveillance society where we've where we have declared war on human nature and its flaws. And we are disproportionately punishing people who didn't actually do very much wrong. Uh, and you know that's what my book's about. Uh, and I, you know, I, I am not hoping for a return of offensive language because I feel the same way everybody does. Of course, yeah. of course. And and I just hope that people on both sides understand that when you're looking at text on a screen, there is a human being on the other side of that. Mm. No matter how trolly you think they are, no matter how much you disagree with what they say, there is still a person there. Yeah. And maybe just take the time to go. Oh well, you know. What what if what if that person uh, was like me? Yeah, and and try and try to connect on a human level and have conversations. Absolutely, and you know, if we destroy somebody on mass and then like totally forget about it and move on with our day uh, and assume that they're fine, they're probably not fine. You know, I met people who had stayed home for like a year and a half after a social media shaming for telling a joke that came out badly. People would talk, you know, about suicidal thoughts, about anxiety, depression, insomnia. Uh, the snowflake does need to feel responsible for the avalanche. So, you know, when you pile in on somebody who doesn't deserve it, when this isn't actual social justice, but like a cathartic alternative to social justice, you you should assume that you are mangling up that person's mental health. And I can tell you that that's true because I've made the effort to go around the world meeting these people. So just just bear that in mind when you're piling it on somebody who doesn't deserve it. Uh, you are You are fucking that person up and it could last a lifetime. So just just bring that into the equation. 
Right. John, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And, and I hope, uh, I, I'm sure you're gonna, you've had a million of these conversations and you will continue to have a million of these conversations. But, you know, but, but, but again, the key word being conversations, and I think it's good that, that people are talking about it. So thank you very much. Because it was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Uh, be excellent to each other <laughs> and party on uh, and enjoy your burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new. Stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top, in his Cuisinart, or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free Right now on Wondery Plus.